Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That look when we made eye contact, I was like, holy sh- you're not going to make it. It was the most surreal moment of my life. Time literally stopped and everything became extremely peaceful. Spencer Beach. His life changed forever. After a workplace accident. Engulfed in a flash fire receiving burns to 90% of his body. Doctors asked him if he would just prefer to die. Walk us through what happened on the day of the fire and your biggest lessons from that day. So I woke up on April 24, 2003, just an average day. I had a feeling in my stomach about a job I was being sent to. Now in the new home industry, flooring is the last major trade to go in. And we just put the wrong color of flooring throughout the main level. Well, my employer had a method where you take a chemical, you dump it all over the floor, let it soak for a couple moments, the chemical would reactivate the glue, and the flooring would peel up in sheets. Saved us tons of time, loads of money. Unfortunately, it came with a side effect. It was highly explosive. And I didn't know that. And I had two instructions. They were to turn the thermostat down to its low setting and open up doors and windows for ventilation. Four in the afternoon, the sun was going down, temperatures were cooling off, and I had both the doors open, so when the thermostat read that outside temperature being below the 16 degrees Celsius, the furnace kicked in. It pulled the fumes down the cold air return, ignited them at the furnace, shot them back up, and created a violent explosion that I was in. How close were you to dying? Literally within seconds of dying. Call it a miracle, call it whatever you want. Uh, I don't know why I'm here. It took me years to figure this near-death experience out. And I'm so thankful that I remember everything I went through because I've been able to go down and dissect deeply what was truly occurring. I consider it to be the greatest message I have worship. But the reality is, is I really shouldn't be here. Spencer, thank you for joining us here at Motiversity. Let's jump right into it. Uh, Walk us through what happened on the day of the fire and your biggest lessons from that day. Well, the incident for me um, happened on April 24, 2003, so just over 20 years ago. Uh, One thing I found out that's really interesting, I've done a lot of motivating of people through all different types of life circumstances, and that's what I call them, life circumstances. Uh, Some people call it trauma or stress, but it's really, I found life, it comes at you from many different ways, and the way it comes at you can be unique, it often is, but the process of healing and going through it, that's very similar, and when I take people through it, it's, that's what I focus on. What I found out is everybody's story starts out the same way on an average, ordinary day. You know, you don't expect to wake up and all of a sudden your life change. 
but it does from time to time and we don't have the tools quite often to deal with it when life hits you that hard. I was in technically what's a chemical fire. So the chemical burnt at the properties of, of that thinner, which was 1500 degrees Celsius. To give you an idea, that is just over twice the heat of the average house fire. That house, that fire was so hot that even firefighters fully geared would not have entered that house because it wouldn't have protected them. When the fire started, I had no clue what was happening. All I knew was just a second ago, this was a normal house and now I am engulfed in flames. I sprung up from my knees and I reached out and grabbed onto the front door handle and I pulled with all my strength. That loud whistle I heard just prior to the fire, that was all the air being pulled in the house to feed the fire because it required a lot of oxygen because it was gonna be the entire room that ignited. So it was pulling the air in through all the cracks in the doors and the window seals and that's what created the whistle. But it also created a pressure difference and sealed the door shut. And I'm a strong man. I'm six foot two right now, roughly 220 pounds. Back then, I was used to carrying buckets of glue and toolboxes and rolls of carpet on my shoulder. I can promise you, I was a strong, strong man. And I didn't have the strength to break that seal. But I had no clue what was happening. Honestly, this door was opening just fine a second ago and now it's not opening at all. So I just let go of the door handle, I turned to my right, I ran through the hallway, past the half bathroom and into the laundry room where the grad entry was. Was everything fire at that time? Everything's fire and the entire area I was working. It's the fumes that were burning. So the entire room, the area was filled with fire. It took me years to figure this near death experience out. And I'm so thankful that I remember everything I went through because I've been able to go down and dissect deeply what was truly occurring. When I figured out this near death experience, I consider it to be the greatest message I have worth sharing. In that moment, I thought about my wife, Tina, and she was four months pregnant with our first child. I thought about how I was never gonna hold her again, kiss her, take her on a date, have dinner with her. And I was never gonna know if I had a boy or girl, what color their hair was gonna be or their eyes, what their name was gonna be. I'd never throw ball, play catch, teach them sports, walk them down an aisle, take them to school. I was gonna miss everything. What I learned in this moment is those were my last thoughts on this world. And if they're my last thoughts, I'd like to consider them to be probably my most important thoughts. Now we all get caught up in our day, right? You get these, what I call stresses. Well, everyone calls them stresses, right? You know, you got these commitments you have to do or work things that need to get done and you never quite seem to get all your work stuff cleared away, do you? You always seem like there's a pile that you leave for the next day or you take it home with you, right? And then you have commitments with friends and with work and business and you name it, you got all these things that you need to do that you chase around. And if you have kids at the end of the day, your day after work doesn't stop. You start chasing after your kids. And then you got to pay your bills and you have all these income problems and you know, all these things that just push onto you and drive your day and they become stresses. When I was in this near death experience, all I could think about was my wife and my unborn child. I didn't care about anything else. I didn't care about that job. I didn't care if it ever got done. I didn't care about paying my bills. I didn't care about playing my friend's bachelor party that night. I didn't care if he ever got married. I didn't care about nothing other than my wife and my unborn child. Interesting. It, it makes a lot of sense. Um, 
but you know, you, when you think about what truly matters in life and, and you just question and you think about money and you think about all these little things and then you get caught up, like you're saying in your whole, your whole day to day, but then what, what does really matter is what comes to you in those, those final moments, uh, super powerful. So I measure knowing now what my most important thoughts are. I measure the success of every day. And when I came in here, everybody's like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, it's a great day. Every day is a great day. And the reason is I measure the success of every day like this. If at the end of the day, my family is happy, healthy, and safe. I had a real good day. I no longer let those stresses impact the outcome of my day. In fact, I reclassified them. I call them distractions because that's exactly what they are. Those stresses, what they do is they take your mind, your eye off of what's truly important and they have you look over here. And while you're looking over here and you're trying to accomplish all these things and they actually impact your life and how you affect the people over here. And then sometimes we don't treat the people we love the best because of these stresses that are in our life. And I just wanna ask you a question. Tell me one problem you had five years ago. It's, it's hard to remember. You, you don't even think about it, right? It's probably I, I could tell you I was doing engineering seven years ago, and mm -hmm. I had some problems then. But nowadays, you don't even think about it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But at that time, I guarantee you, five years ago, you had stuff going on in your day that were stressing you out and mm -hmm. overtaking the, your day, and yet they were so meaningless, you can't even remember what they are five years ago. Uh, five years ago, later. Yeah. And in the moment, it's everything. It's like, everything. if I don't pass this exam, you know, my life's over, right? But yeah. look five years ahead, you don't even think about it at all, right? Whether you passed or failed. Yeah. Interesting. Just totally yeah. leaves your mind. Yeah. The only thing that anyone will ever bring up whenever I ask them that question, or if I go back six months or a year or whatever, the only time they'll ever be able to bring anything up is if someone in those most important thoughts was impacted. Like I lost a loved one person yeah. or I had a breakup in a relationship or a friend ended up getting injured or whatever the case. That's the only time anyone ever can bring up someone that happened five years ago hmm. is if it impacted those most important thoughts. Yeah. It's like a loved one. Yeah. Hmm. So wow. don't let money or grades or um, your commitments or whatever take away from what's most important to your life. Simplify it. Mm-hmm. And set that standard of what's the success in your day. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. I mean, such a positive outlook on on life and something you can use in your everyday. And I'll be using that. That's really powerful. Yeah. Awesome. So it ultimately was the thoughts of my wife and my unborn child. They, they gave me the strength. I had to try again for them. So I rose up from my knees and I grabbed onto that screaming hot door handle and I gave that door everything I had. And that door opened. Now, what ended up happening was I didn't gain superhuman strength, although I am a religious person. And in my presentations, I'll say God gave me the strength. It's like, honestly, no, it's science. This is, it's, a, it's a completely scientific answer. It was a chemical I was pouring on the floor that was now evaporating and turning into fumes. It was a limited source. No one's adding more chemical to the fire. So in 20 seconds, which is what I figured the time it took for me to go to this point, in 20 seconds, those fumes were burning off, they were dissipating, which meant the pressure difference was also decreasing. And I now had the strength to open that door. Okay, yeah. When the door opened, I could see sunshine. The overhead door to the garage wasn't installed yet, and I just leaped into the garage. 
When I did that back then, the home builders had told us to throw all our garbage into the garage. So when I landed in that garage, this is all construction garbage. This is two by fours and nails and screws and siding and shingles and all the flooring I just removed soaked in the ex exact same chemical. And I'm on fire now. My body's physically burning. When I hit that garbage pile, I ignited the second fire. Oh my gosh. But I honestly didn't care. My escape was right there. I have a YouTube channel. It's mostly focused on safety awareness stuff. But I have in there one video I call it the list of lasts. And this is when I realized, like I tell audience, that was the last time I could run. Last time I could interlock my mm -hmm. fingers and make a fist. Last time I looked normal. Last time I felt normal. We've all made our lists of first. And a list of first is a great, it's a fun list to make, right? Like first time I went on a date or first time I kissed somebody, first time I got an A, first time I got a trophy, first time I drove a car, you know, all these things are the first time. Those are exciting lists to make and they're fun lists to make. But if you get injured and your life changes really quick, you go through some kind of trauma. You get to make a different type of list. And it's the list of last. Last time my friend called me. Last time my spouse told me she loved me. Last time I had a spouse. Last time I could run. Last time I felt confident about myself. That's not a fun list to make. Hmm. And it honestly, it's so easy to prevent that list. When you get those gut feelings, you know you're being doing something you shouldn't be doing. Stop and assess what you're doing. It's not worth the risk. Hmm. Because I can promise you, the amount you lose when things go wrong is just not worth making that list of last. So Spencer, when you were in that room, you know, lying on the ground, curled up, and even when you were moving around, how close were you to dying? Literally within seconds of dying, honestly. The fire was so intense. Uh, I was told, so I remember all my dreams in a coma. And when I was in a coma, there was one dream, and I've actually never shared this dream on any kind of podcast or stage, but there was one dream where a coworker, his name was Race, was sitting on, so like the front doors here, the front entries here, there was a stairwell coming right down. And he was sitting on the stairwell running, yell, run to the back of the house, run to the back of the house. And if I actually would have just run down the other hallway into the kitchen and the living room, I would have run right out of the flames. And I would have ran to the back of the yard and collapsed there. Um, I've talked to firefighters, many of them. I'm quite known with the firefighters, but they told me I would have died there. Oh, really? And the reason being is they would have no clue to go and look at the back of the house and see if anyone was lying in the backyard. Um, I was literally seconds away from dying. Wow. Yeah. So then instead you ran through the garage and you just got out, you collapsed. Who found you? What happened next? There was a circle gathering around me of tradespeople. And she just moved them out of the way. And uh, she was an off-duty off nurse uh, She that lived just down the street. And when she heard the explosion, she came running. She was the, probably the first person in my story. I'm so thankful for being there. She, her training kicked in. And she did everything she could to keep me calm. She found out I was married and had a baby on the way. She did all she could to keep me there so that I could have a chance to get to the hospital. I can't imagine though how hard it was for her because in that process of her trying to keep me calm, I was literally screaming that my life was over. 
I was asking her also if my fingers and my nose and ears and everything were still there. And uh, she reassured me everything was still there. And I, you got to imagine, too, I'm naked at this time. The only thing left on me were articles that were made of leather. And that was my leather belt, my work pouch, my knee pads, and my hiking shoes, which is also the areas of my body I'm not burnt. Oh, Those, whatever was made of leather protected the skin. Whoa. Which, um, if I, I had leather gloves in my work truck, which I used religiously going to my jobs. But I made a choice that day not to wear my gloves because I knew that I was going to contaminate them so much with glue that I'd have to throw them out. Mm. And I didn't, my employer didn't spend the money on those gloves. I spent $20 on mm. those gloves. What I look at is like when I examine all the parts that weren't burned and then I look at my hands and knowing I had to hold on to those red hot door handles. I just wonder how much those gloves would have made a difference to my hands. No kidding, yeah. Uh, the ambulance came. It took them 13 minutes to get to me, uh, was, which is long. But at the same time, I'm in the new home industry. These crescents aren't on the map yet. The ambulance actually followed the smoke coming from the house oh, well. to find me. And when they did find me, they came over a catwalk because they didn't know how to get to the cul-de-sac. So they went over a catwalk and the paramedic jumped out of the vehicle and ran to me. I have no idea if the paramedic was a boy or girl. I don't know what color their hair was. I don't know how tall they were. I don't know if they're white, black, indigenous. I don't know anything about what this paramedic looked like. And yet you were conscious this whole time from le the moment leaving the house to them getting there and, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, but when that paramedic knelt down beside me, that look, when we made eye contact, that look of was like, holy shit, you're not going to make it. That, that look was etched into my memory. But that's all I remember about that paramedic, was that look. They raced me off into the ambulance, and then they started taking me to the University of Alberta Hospital. Um, and it was weird, because like I'm used to driving Edmonton. That was my job as a service guy, was to like cut through Edmonton and go around it and you know get to the, all these different houses like multiple times a day. I was sitting, I was lying down in this ambulance looking out the back and every time we took a corner, I knew exactly what street we were on. And yet I needed the paramedic. I was like, how far away are we? How far away are we? He kept a running tally, you know, like 10 minutes and seven minutes and five minutes. And he kept that going until he said 30 seconds. Uh, when he said 30 seconds, I felt a bump and then I blacked out. I don't remember being taken out of the ambulance. I don't remember going through the emergency room. My wife actually beat me to the hospital and she oh. was filling out the, the forms to admit me. And that's when she realized how bad it was. She heard the charge nurse say the severe burn is here. And when she heard those words, that's when she knew it was bad. Um, and then they wheeled me right past her. I was covered head to toe in a sheet and she said my right arm was hanging out and it looked fine. Uh, I can only imagine what went through her mind when she saw Absolutely. that yeah. is like TV and movies have taught me if someone's covered head to toe in a sheet in the hospital, mm. it usually means they're not there. And that was my first image to my wife was he's gone. The reality was, is I, my injuries were so severe. They were protecting the public from viewing me. Okay. So it wasn't that I needed to be covered in a sheet. Jeez. It was that they were covering me so that other people weren't going to be traumatized by what they were going to see. Okay. 
they took me into a private room. Um, I know nowadays you hear about like paramedics having to wait with patients for hours in a hallway. No, not when you're severely hurt. When you're severely hurt, the doctors and nurses are waiting for you. And this is a massive team. This is the entire burn unit is waiting for me. This is the doctors, the charge nurses, the physiotherapists, the occupational therapists, the dietitians, the psychologists, the anesthesiologists, you name it. Anyone that was going to take to help me survive and get better was in that room because they had to make a group assessment of okay. what was going to be needed. When they, um, my memory, although I remember it all, starts to get really twisted at this point because now I'm getting highly medicated as well. So my memory was the paramedics brought me into the room and they picked me up off of the gurney and they threw me into a corner and I'm, fetaled, I'm rolled into the fetal position. That's how I remember things. What really happened is they took me off the one bed, put me onto another bed, and now the doctors are talking mm. to me. But my mind starts to really twist things around. Oh, well, yeah. The first thing that happened was the head doctor, Dr. Tragett, stepped out of the crowd and introduced himself as Dr. Tragett, then reassured me as in the best burn treatment, treatment facility in all of Canada. It's the third best treatment facility in all of North America. Okay. So, which was really thankful that, you know, I had this expert, not just a team, but I had an expert team yeah, that's to assess yeah. me. Okay. Um, and then after he told me that, he asked me how I was burned. I didn't understand the question. I didn't realize at that time there was multiple ways to be burned. So, and I, I told him something also to answer his question, but I found it interesting. I was also trying to make him laugh. And I knew I was trying to make him laugh, right? Because that's what we do when our buddies get hurt, right? Mm. You ever done that? You've been out with your buddies. You're riding a bike or on skateboard or whatever. You egg them on. You're doing things that you know are risky. And somebody does get hurt. And when yep. they get hurt, the very first thing we do, we all run and gather and we try and make them laugh. Right, cheer them up. Yeah. Why do we try and make them laugh? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I would think to cheer them up, but maybe it's just kind of a... A little deeper than it's that. It's a bit of a, a fear response, is it? Because if they laugh, it's not that bad. Mm, okay. We got away with it. And that's what I tried to do. Yeah. I tried to make that doctor laugh. Yeah. So when he asked me how I was burned, I told him I was burned in a fire. Not a very helpful answer. <laughs> Quite, I went to the obvious, right? Right, right, right. He asked a couple more questions because that didn't answer, sort of satisfy him and what he was looking for. So like, what were you doing? What were you working with? He started, you know, taking me the process of what I was doing so he could determine what kind of burn it was. Right. Turned out it was a chemical burn. The reason that was important is when you get burned, you lose your skin. And your skin does a lot of things for you, but one of them is it stops things from entering your body. So when you get burned, doesn't matter what type of burn it is, they have to treat the burn. But now, because I lost my skin, I was working with this chemical, that chemical could be entering my body as well. So they have to also um, treat that, that possibility of having these foreign contaminants in my body as well. Mm, the chemical itself, yeah. yeah. So after he found out it was a chemical burn, it was my turn to start asking questions. And the first question I asked him was, how bad was it? I could have looked, I was naked, but I was too afraid. I didn't want to see. He just looked me up and down and then looked me straight in the eye and told me I just, uh, that I received third and fourth degree burns to 90% of my body. I had heard of third degree burns, but I couldn't tell you what they were. And I'd never heard of a fourth degree burn back then. And I have both to most of my body. What does that mean? Well, Mr. Beach, you have a 5% chance to live. Oh my gosh, a five. That's it. 
I now have come to realize that I honestly shouldn't be here. I used to go to the burn unit early on when I came out of the hospital and I was happy, go lucky. I always have been that kind of person. I want to motivate them and be a mentor and help them through their journey. And I'd find out there's a severe burn and I'm like, are they 50% burned or 60% burned? And you're like, oh, well, let me know when they're ready. Cause you can't see them early on because infection, there's a lot of protocols that could hurt them, right? So you have to wait till they're at the right stage. And then I come back a month later and I'm like, hey, is that, how's that person? Are they ready for visitors? Oh, they didn't make it. I'm like, well, what do you mean? They're like 30% less burn than I was. How did they not make it? I've come to realize that that 5% the doctor gave me was just a number. He had to give me some number, so he mm. made it really small. Okay. But the reality is, is I really shouldn't be here. The only reason I was given the chance to live was because my wife was pregnant, mm. is what I'm told. Okay. I don't know what came over me. Outside of the house, I was screaming my life was over. In the ambulance, I was begging the paramedic for too much medication. I didn't actually want to make it to the hospital because I didn't want my wife to see me like this. And now I have my cake. All, and it's super easy to eat that cake. All I had to say one word, just die. And I made my decision. Life is done. Mm -hmm. I don't know what came over me. I must have stopped thinking about myself and started thinking about Tina and our mm -hmm. little baby because my exact words were, I don't care. Do what it takes. I don't want to die. I have come to realize how much those three statements uh, came to impact my family and for the rest of our lives. What really ended up happening with that, those three statements is I just chose a direction. Let's fight. Mm -hmm. yep. But I was a blind direction. I had no clue what the future held for me or my family. Well, oh my gosh. <laughs> so incredible that you chose that path, especially given a 5% chance. And you were, I'm sure you're thinking about the future at that time. But um, do, do you think, had you not have had someone in your life, like your wife and your unborn child, do you think you still would have chose to fight? Or is it too hard to say? Again, I don't. I can't answer that question. Yeah, it's All I can tell you is in the moment, the, the choice I made. What I can say though is um, without people in your life, overcoming hardship, which is what I call it as well, you know, like life circumstances brings hardship and everyone deals with hardship, right? Like, have you ever had a bad day? Of course. Of course, yeah, right? Everyone's had a bad day. Well, that's what I had. I had a bad day. Hmm. But uh, let me ask you another question. Have you ever had multiple bad days? Uh, I'm sure I've had a few, but <laughs> probably more maybe. than you can count or yeah. remember, right? <laughs> yeah. But the reality is, is when those bad days happen, you don't get through them on your own. You get through them with the people you love. Mm -hmm. And so if I wouldn't have had Tina and my baby, which, you know, when she was born, we called her Amber. So let's just give her a name at this point. But, you know, when, if I didn't have them to support and guide me through this journey, I wouldn't be here. I would be consumed with anger. I would be chased them out of my life. I would be turned to addictions. You don't get through these things on your own. The interesting thing though is help is a very interesting thing because when you, Joel, when you're hurting and I see it, I'm like, well, what can I do to help you, right? Like you always want to help the people you love when you see them hurting, right? But when you're hurting and that help comes, you're like, I don't want any help. I need to do this on my own, which is one of the worst things you can say because life is not easy. It wasn't designed for you to go through it on your own. I look at help like this. 
when you have one person trying to solve one problem, you have one person trying to solve one problem. The moment you accept help, you have a whole bunch of people with all these skills and talents and experiences and desire and love and caring trying to help you solve one problem. Hmm. And I can promise you the hand is stronger than the thumb. Hmm. Just like a whole bunch of people trying to help you through a life circumstance is probably going to be way more effective than you trying to do it on your own. Yeah. I think that's something that's undervalued. You know, they don't talk about that in school or you're not really taught that. It's something you almost have to discover for yourself. And um, yeah, what a what a lesson to learn. I did want to go actually maybe one one step further when it comes to the question of, of giving up. Uh, in my life, I've lost a few people uh, to suicide who've taken their lives. What advice would you give to someone who might be struggling with the physical and emotional aftermath of a traumatic event? That's a loaded question again. You're great at asking loaded questions. So the answer is yes, yes, and yes. So really there's like four parts to it. There's anger, there's depression, there's anxiety, and there's suicide. So let's talk about them all. Let's start with the beginning though, anger. Anger comes from, I. Uh, it's an interesting thing. I. It's a mathematical equation where anger comes from. Anger comes from when your life changes in a way you didn't want it to change and you couldn't prepare for it. I promise you the next time you get angry, just step back and ask yourself what changed. And you will find something you didn't want to happen to you and you didn't expect it to happen. And that is the source of anger. And it's how we deal with life changing. And it's a completely normal emotion when you think about it because it's such a mathematical equation that that's how we deal with life changing ways we didn't want is we get angry. And anger actually is there to motivate you through these instances, but we don't understand anger. So it consumes us instead. I look at anger as the second best emotion in the world. I think the best emotion is love. We all seek it. We all want it. We all chase after it. You know, we desire love. And love has this extremely positive side to it. But does it also have a negative side to it? You can get hurt by opening up your heart to the wrong people, can you not? Yeah. Right? And uh, if you go seeking love and not know what you're looking for, you might find things that you don't didn't want to add into your life. Hmm. But that positive side of love is so positive that we're willing to ignore the negative side. Hmm. Anger is the same, but exact opposite. We've all seen the negative side of anger so much, and it hurts. When that negative side of anger exposes itself, it hurts that we're afraid to go looking at the positive side of anger. But there is a positive side to anger, and it's there to move you through things. So let's explain anger. The way I look at anger is it's like filling up a balloon full of air. You put too much air into that balloon, and what's going to happen to the balloon? Pop. It'll pop. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't pop though. It explodes. You ever seen a slow motion balloon yeah, popping? Yeah. It is a violent <laughs> explosion if you really look at it. That's what happens with anger. You put mm. too much anger into you and eventually it will find a way out. Mm. And that's when it explodes. They're what I call anger explosions. And we've all had them. Everyone has lost their crap at one time or another due to anger. And when you get angry and it explodes out of you, Nothing positive ever comes from that anger explosion. But it, anger is a natural emotion. It's supposed to happen. So we got to find better ways to release it. That's where the negativity comes, is how we release that anger. And when it gets released uncontrolled, it causes damage to you. Hmm. And what ends up happening is you have your inner circle. You have all the people in your life, right, that you love and care about. Those are the people that are in the room when you can't take it anymore. That's when the explosion happens. 
And when that explosion happens is you say things and you do things you didn't mean to say or do. You're letting this natural emotion out of you in an uncontrolled way and it ends up hurting the people we love. And you do it over and over and over again because healing is not a once in a life, uh, like happens in a moment. It takes time for it to happen. And eventually your loved ones, they get tired of dealing with these explosions happening on them and they leave. And now remember help, how you need these people to help you through it. When you push them out of your life because of anger explosions, you now limit yourself on being able to get better. And it's very interesting. I consider anger to be alive. Because anger wants what every living thing wants. It wants to reproduce and it wants to feed. Those are the two things every living thing goes after. And the way anger feeds is consuming you, taking all the good things out of your life. And it reproduces through those anger explosions. Hmm. When you go and you throw your anger onto other people. And now they leave because they get angry. So the way I deal with anger is I take it out on things I can't hurt. Because I know that anger is coming out of me one way or another. And I'll give you a great example. When COVID hit, I was having the best year of my business. It was, everything was booked. I was mm. like, I had no worries at all. The future looked bright. Yeah. And in three days, I lost every single contract I had. I had no clue what the future held for me. And whenever, when this happened, I realized I'm going through something I don't know how to deal with. I've never had this happen before. So I let the emotions happen because they're natural. I let the depression, I got sad, I cried. I told my wife straight out, I don't know what the answers are. You know, I, but after three days, I was like, enough's enough. Mm. I felt it now. Now it's time for me to move on. And now I knew the anger was gonna be the next thing. Okay. So the way I deal with anger is I get physical. Uh, for me, I can't go to the gym and work out like the average person can because my hands are so messed up. So I go for really, really long walks. And what I do is when I'm getting physical and I'm taking that energy out on myself, not only am I improving my health, but I'm dumping that negative energy hmm. into something I can't hurt. And when I'm actually working out, I found it allows my mind to process what's actually going on in my life at the same time. Yeah. And then, as, and then I'm processing, I'm actually usually finding positive things I can do. Yeah. And then when I'm home and I've dumped all that negative energy, I'm now able to hold on to the people I love instead of exploding on them. And pushing them away. Yeah, I really like that actually. Um, you know, instead of just bottling up the anger, letting it all out at home, you're going for a walk. You're if you could work out, you would work out and you're almost like burning it off, right? Yeah. Yeah. I also tell people when I'm mentoring them is like if you know you're gonna lose your shit, come to me. Hmm. I know exactly what's happening in the process. I understand you're not trying to hurt me. I understand that you're just letting this natural, normal emotion out of you and you aren't an expert on how to release anger. Yep. Most people aren't. No. So I'm like, come to me. I completely understand. And I am a safe place for you to lose your anger on. Hmm. You know, say whatever you want. It's not going to stick. <laughs> so. Hold on, put your number in my phone and uh, call you up next time. Yeah, I was like, ring, ring. It's like, what the hell did you do to me? I'm going to become a YouTube sensation overnight. How to deal with anger. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that advice is going to be really helpful to a lot of people. Um, maybe talk to us about anxiety next. Well, let's yeah. go to depression because it's depression? the next stage. Okay. Uh, depression is interesting. Um, I'm not a depressed person. I will tell you that straight out. But yet, at this time in my life, I was extremely depressed. And I had severe depression. It wasn't like running no depression. It was horrible, horrible depression. And what I found out in depression is that I, I took all my morals and values and everything I held cherished to me and it threw them out the window. And now everything was possible. 
And what I found out is when I was depressed, I was not making good decisions. I was not seeing hope or a reason to try. And it allowed me to wallow in misery and to hide in a corner and pretend that, you know, this was what normal life was going to be from this point forward. When I say people are, when people are depressed, what I tell them is don't trust yourself anymore um, because you're not going to make the best decisions for yourself. You need to trust. And here's the key. You have to find someone that knows you really well and you love and trust them. Because if they know you really well, they're going to know your morals and values. But you also have to love and trust them. And they have to be people that you're putting your deepest decision-making processes into their hands. Because they'll help you make better decisions. Um, and it's really interesting. Like I had a magical way of taking anything positive and turning it negative. I found that um, when people are depressed or they're going through really hard things in life, that we say no to things in life. It's our natural response is, hey, you want to come out for a beer? No, I can't. That's uh, too much for me. I'm, I don't want people to see me. I can't deal with it. I'm not ready to leave the house. We find reasons to say no. Sometimes you're like, I don't even know why I'm saying no. I'm just saying no to things we used to say yes to. We have to say yes because those yeses lead to life experiences. And those experiences would enrich your life. Hiding in your house all your day is never going to help you get through depression. You need to, so A, trust other people that you know and love to help you make better decisions. And say yes to life. Hmm. Because the more you say yes to life, the more you're going to live and the faster you're going to get out of that depression. Hmm. Anxiety is very interesting. For me, I couldn't breathe when I was anxious. And I literally know what it's like not to breathe. When I was going to OR, so when I came out of a coma, I had a ventilator. Both my lungs were severely burned and this lung collapsed. And because of that, you know, I couldn't breathe on my own. Um, so they had the ventilator. And whenever I went for surgery, they disconnected the ventilator. And then the nurse, well, there was five nurses, and one of them had to give me a bag, and they'd give me my air through a bag. And every once in a while, they'd forget the rhythm of my breathing, and they'd forget to give me a breath. I know what it's like not to be able to breathe. And it is the most helpless feeling in the world. And that's what I relate anxiety to. And that was when you were in a coma, you're saying? No, you this is outside this of is outside, coma. okay. Yeah. But that is, anxiety is like the most helpless feeling people ever go through. And if you ever see anyone anxious... That's literally how they're acting. Like they're freaking out because they're extremely helpless at this moment. The weird thing with anxiety though, it's all in your head. Mm. Just like it was for me. Our head is very extremely powerful and it can create these scenarios that are harmful to us. So there are a lot of ways to deal with anxiety. One is they say do mathematical equations in your head. Mm. And the reason being is the mathematical equations will take your mind off of the moment and they'll start to... Help your your brain to think about other things. The other is breathe. If the most helpless feeling in the world is not being able to breathe, and most people that are anxious can't, they feel like they can't breathe. Breathe intentionally. Breathe. It'll take it away. And then let's talk about suicide because that's the progression. There's the anger and then depression. You don't just jump into suicide. You go through this process to where you get there. When I was suicidal, I saw everything as two ways: that my life sucked and nothing was going to change. Now let's face it, my life did suck. I was extremely burnt. I went from 120 pounds to 112. I lost almost all my skin. I couldn't move. I had tubes in my mouth and my lungs and my, and my stomach to feed me. I, I had, hadn't been home in over two months, and there's still many months, years to go until I could go home. You know, my life sucked. It was horrible. And I didn't see, you know, when I was 112 pounds and unable to move, I didn't see the ounce of muscle I was putting on every, every week. I didn't see the millimeter of nerve I was growing every day. I didn't see any improvements happening at all. In fact, it went nine months, oh, just over nine months until I rolled over the first thing I actually did for myself. I didn't see any improvement. 
And now we're talking like I'm two months into my story and I am extremely suicidal. I used to play a game in my head. If I could kill myself, how would I do it? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Now I consider everyone's had suicidal thoughts. Like if I die, who's going to come to my funeral? Those kind of thoughts. Those aren't suicidal thoughts. That is actually a normal thing people go through. Although it's not, it's dark, but it's, it's normal. When you start contemplating how you're going to end your life, that is when, that is a sure sign you need to reach out for help. Because your life, you're going through something right now. And I guarantee you, when you're suicidal, you will see everything sucks and nothing's going to change. The people that have ever reached out to me who's suicidal have always had one thing in common. They've all been teenagers. And every single one of them had one thing in common. Their parents hated them. Hmm. Now, when you think about it, your parents are your strongest network. They, I have never yet, I've yet to meet a parent that hates their child. Although I'm sure there's some out there that exist. But for the vast majority of parents, we love our children. We will do anything for them. And if you can convince yourself that your strongest network hates you, everything sucks. Hmm. And when you're suicidal, you don't see any hope. You don't see anything getting better. Nothing's going to change. And I can, if your life completely sucks and it's never going to get better, there's only one outcome. Let's end it. It makes sense then, you know, why people then go that route. So whenever people come to me that are suicidal, I first focus on this everything sucks thing. I'm like, but does your life really suck? We all have those most important thoughts. Even if it may not be your parents, there's still people in your life that you know you love and they love you and they care about you and you care about them. We all have things in our world worth fighting for. Not everything sucks. So I first take away that. And I'll be like, I'm an international motivational speaker, and I'm giving you my time. Hmm. How can it be so bad? Hmm. Not everything sucks. I get it's not easy, but it's not that horrible either. And then I look at about change. What I found about change is this. You can't stop change even if you tried. Your life is all about change. Every moment of every second of your life is changing. And if you can't stop change, all you can do is have a hand in its outcome. So why not work with that change? Yes, your life may not be completely pleasant right now. Not everything sucks, but you know what? It's not also extremely horrible. Let's pull on to those positive things. Let's see what we can do with them and work with the change. Hmm. It took me five years and honestly five years and I was standing there and I was going through everything that I had overcome and achieved. And I'm out of the hospital and graduate from university with a distinction. I'm a fully trained safety professional. My speaking business is taking off. And I looked back five years later, uh, back to when I was suicidal. And I looked back and I'm like, I didn't see this outcome. Hmm. Not at all. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I didn't see any outcome. Right. So... I say work with the change, yeah. and I can promise you, it will take you places you never imagined possible. Yeah, and it takes time, right? It takes time. It's hard to see into the future five years. It's it's almost impossible, right? But you almost have to like trust the process, right? Yeah, I would actually really want to emphasize that too. Is we expect instant gratification. There is no one that goes through trauma or hardship or life circumstances where time is not the solution. You need to allow the time to happen. You can't expect everything to change on a dime. It's not going to. And you need to work with it. So work with it and let that time happen. And I guarantee you, if you work with it and let the time happen, you will go five years into it, look back and go, I didn't see this outcome. 
give it time. Yeah. What did you miss out on in your time in the hospital? I was in a coma for six weeks. Uh, University Hospital for nine months, Glenos Hospital for five more months. So I was in the hospital for 14 months. I actually got released on the, on the day of my incident 14 months later. So I missed every major holiday, every birthday. I missed the birth of my child. I missed uh, an entire year of life. Um, and in there, some of it was negative because at first, they, you know, I found reasons to get angry. So every time I missed an anniversary or birthday or Christmas or Thanksgiving, I was like, well, Everything sucks, right? Like, I should be having turkey right now. I should be celebrating this. I should be out with my friends. I missed my friend's uh, wedding. I was supposed to plan a stag at. Like, I found ways of turning everything negative, right? Um, it wasn't until my daughter was born, born, though, that I really started to find ways to look at things more positive. When my daughter was born, we're five months into my incident now, and I'm extremely suicidal. I'm really depressed and angry. And uh, my father-in-law came into my room and told me that my wife was pregnant four in the morning. And, you know, I, I was like, well, you want to talk about someone who had a unique ability to take anything positive and turn it negative? I looked at it as my father-in-law. I'm like, well, I don't care. I'm stuck in this isolation room. I'm in the wrong hospital. I'm completely immobile. I'm useless. I'm angry. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I want to kill myself. What the hell good am I? I'm not even a father at this moment. I can just get out of my room. She'll be fine. Literally, she will be fine. Tina gave birth in an hour. They took her to the Misery Court. She actually gave birth so fast oh, well, that yeah. she gave birth at home. And then they took her to the Misery Court Hospital with the baby. Uh, they checked them both out. The next day, they released them both. Both were healthy. And I, I don't know what it's like to give birth. I'm a man, but I'm told it's not easy. It's an extremely hard process, not only physically, but it, like exhausting, but emotionally, mentally. And that usually healing and sleep and rest is like prescribed, right? Well, not Tina. When she left the hospital, she jumped into the minivan where my father-in-law was driving. She wouldn't have done anything to cheer me up. So she drove right to the university hospital. And she entered my room. And to enter my room, you had to wash your hands and put on sterile gloves, sterile gowns, sterile mask, and a sterile hat. So I didn't see my wife's face for over a year, almost, honestly. Um, but she came into my room. And they don't make these little baby sterile garments so they slid Amber into a, a sterile pillowcase. And then she brought her my baby in to meet me. And she would have done anything to cheer me up. Because here's another thing about depression. Everybody knew I was depressed. Except for me. Hmm. I was the one person that wasn't willing to admit it. Right. And when she brought my daughter into my room, she raised the railing of the bed up out of the blanket because I wasn't strong enough to hold her. So she did everything to protect her. And then later, right here in the crook of my arm, and as Amber laid there, I counted her fingers, and she had a beautiful little nose. At that time, I was missing my nose, and her ears were there, and she had blonde hair, and I know that was my blonde hair. <laughs> and the reason I know that is because Tina also has blonde hair, but she pays for it. Okay, right? Yeah. That was my blonde hair. That's me on my little baby girl. And I looked at it, and I'm like, you know what? I made a lot of mistakes in life. In grade nine, I was a straight-A student, and I wanted to be popular and make friends, so I... I found drugs and drinking and, you know, I kind of took a different path in high school and I closed a lot of doors in my life, which put me into the trades and I'm not against that. I think I love doing what I did. But, you know, I made those mistakes early on and, you know, I didn't listen to myself that day and I allowed myself to get be put into a horrible situation at work and go through this, this fire. Like, I made lots of mistakes. But here's this brand little baby girl. She did nothing wrong in life. I actually changed her life and her mother's womb. And all she needed in life was two things. She needed her mom. She needed her dad. She had that mom. 
but at that time she didn't have a dad. When I held Amber that time, what ended up happening is, I describe it like this. For five months, my eyes were looking inside and they were examining everything that had changed and I didn't like anything. I hated everything that I saw. But when my daughter was laid into my arms, what ended up happening was my eyes were literally taken and ripped out of my face and turned around and forced to look outside. Hmm. When I looked outside of myself, that's when I saw Tina. That's when I saw this amazing Bernie with all these medical people that are caring for me. Hmm. That's when I saw I had a little baby girl. Interesting, yeah. That's when I saw I had things worth fighting for. When it comes to depression, anger, anxiety, suicide, you don't have to fight for yourself. I don't care what reason it is you have worth fighting for. Whatever you find worth fighting for, fight for it. Look outside of yourself. It's not hard to do that. And when you do and you look around the room, I guarantee you're going to find things that in your life you have worth fighting for and fight for them. I really like that message. Looking outside of yourself, you know, it's so easy just to look through your own eyes, think about yourself, um, but to to think about others and, and fight for not just yourself, but for others as well. It's a, it's a really powerful, um, strong message to share. Thanks. Uh, so last question I have, um, Spencer, you're now a motivational speaker. It's been, you know, a number of years since, uh, since the event. I think now the being a motivational speaker, first of all, is incredible. Uh, it's just empowering how you've gone down that path. We work with lots of motivational speakers, of course, at Motiversity. Um, what, what inspired you to, to speak to others? And what, what's the message you want to convey to others, uh, whether it's on, uh, maybe just on safety when it comes to, to workplaces? On safety? Yeah. My biggest message when it comes to safety is don't fight it. So many people fight it. Like, and it's just it's stupid. You know, you see people like today, I'll give you a great example. I'm supposed to be here at one in the afternoon. I left my house at noon knowing it's going to take me about 35 minutes to get here. Why did I do that? Because I know if I leave at 35 minutes, I can drive the rules of the road. And when I drive the rules of the road, I'm actually not stressed out. It actually driving becomes enjoyable. And it gives me time to find parking, to find the place. I, but most people are going to be like, well, I'm going to leave at 1230 and I'm going to get there right at one. And by doing that, you create all this extra stress in your life because it takes one thing going wrong and all of a sudden you're late. And now everything gets blown out of proportion, right? So don't fight safety. And it's so easy when you actually work safe. It, it's very interesting. It, it improves your life. I look at safety like this, and I've, uh, I'm highly trained in it as well. Safety is not there to stop you from dying. I can promise you that. And if you really look at it, if you're in the workplace or whatever, you're at home or whatever, and I put on inspections and training and orientations, and you do nothing when it actually comes to living your life, to working or playing and anything. You're just always trying to control the risk, and you do nothing actually beyond that. I promise you, you'll still die. Death is a part of life. No matter how much safety I make you do, you will die. So if safety can't stop you from dying, there has to be a different reason for it. And that reason is by being safe, it stops incidences, which leaves you with your abilities. And by doing that, improves every moment of your life. Safety is there to improve every moment of your life. And if we slow down... Uh, remember, you know, five years ago, I guarantee you had a rush job. You had a job that was over-consuming you, and yet it still got done. They always get done. So there's no reason in losing your mind over this one job when five years later, you're not even going to remember what that job was. Mm -hmm. yep. Take your time to do it right. And yeah. I promise you, you'll stop instances, and that will improve your life. Yeah.
take it a little easier on those those deadlines that others are imposing on you you yeah. know yeah and just like and sometimes you're going to be late you know what the interesting with being late is you can't be more late than late hmm. right if you're three minutes later five minutes later ten minutes late you're late yeah so there's no point in trying to save 30 seconds by speeding and racing through lights and that mm-hmm. no one's going to get it to come you come to work and they'll be like attaboy you <laughs> saved 45 seconds getting here a little bit earlier because you're already late yeah we're yeah. never going to give you that high five. You're late. Yeah. And the other thing is, don't lose your head on people who are late. We're all late from time to time. Yeah. Spencer, what's next for you? Uh, my life is all about change. So right now, I'm I'm the type of person that plans for the future. Um, I'm looking at retiring, honestly, in about six or seven years. And but I know I'm not the person that can just stop doing things. I you asked uh, earlier on, like what motivates me. What motivated me to become a speaker and to share all my stories is, A, I went through hell and back and I learned a lot about life and, and I want to share it. But the second is I really want to help other people. And so I know when I'm done speaking. And the reason I'm going to be done speaking is because I call it chasing money. You know, there's a comes to a point where you should have enough money and you should know when that point is. And when I'm done chasing money, I'm actually recruiting a bunch of people underneath me. I'm training to be speakers and it's going to be their time to shine. I don't have to take the spotlight forever. Let other people grow and have that ability to provide for their families as well. So I'm bringing them up to take that void. But I also know that I can't stop. So I'm volunteering. I sit on two boards right now. One of them is for the Edmonton Firefighter Burn Treatment Society. And the other is I'm a treasurer for another organization. And I'm just trying to, I want to make a difference by just giving people my time and my talents. And still doing what I do, but in a way that has no benefit for me. I want to be able to offer to go to schools and speak and say, I'll do it for free. And, you know, let me make a difference, you know, to go and help out in advanced burn care and burn research and make the next person's journey easy. I just, that's what I want to do. I want to become community oriented. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I love that. Spencer, thank you for sharing your story with us today. You know, it's been, it's been emotional, but it's also been inspirational as well. And yeah, I think you're going to, really impact a lot of people through this this episode and we'll make sure to get it out on all of our youtube channels and and our podcasts as well and and thank you as well for just the you know the the bravery and the courage that you have being here to share your story you know i think a lot of people would wouldn't be here today it would be really tough for them um and they maybe wouldn't see you know they'd be looking inwards and they wouldn't see the 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 effect they can have when they look outwards and when they share their story outwards like you're doing today um, where can people find you and do you have a book? I have a book. It's called In Case of Fire and you can find it in the same place where people can find me. I don't deal with bookstores anymore. They're <laughs> bastards to deal with. But uh, it's <laughs> on my website, spencerspeaks.ca. But if you don't remember that, just Google my name, Spencer Beach. There's two Spencer Beaches in the world. I'm one of them. The other one is a real beach on the big island, Hawaii, which I have been to. It's a beautiful beach. If you ever go there, all I ask is don't pee on it. It's a really nice <laughs> beach. So. All right. And you've been there. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, it's a bucket list thing. It's, uh, there you go. If you got a beach named after you in Hawaii, <laughs> I say you have to go to it. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What message do you want to leave everyone with uh, who's listening today? <laughs> uh, why me is the third most asked question in the world. Uh, everyone will ask it. Everyone will have a down day. And when you have a down day, you're going to ask why me? Why did my life have to change? And there's no answers to why me. Why me is an anchor that holds you to the past. It was about... 11 months into my incident, I'm in the Glen Rose Hospital. I'm now learning to move. I rolled over, then I sat up, and then I had to start walking. When I rolled over for the first time, I was convinced I was never going to roll over again. And then I did. And I was like, wow, well, what else can I do? And I actually didn't realize this was happening, but I stopped asking why me that day. 
And I started asking a new question. I was, well, what else can I do? I've now refined the question to a little bit more simpler. And I say, what can I do for me? Hmm. I no longer let trauma, hardship, or anything anchor me to the past. I ask that forward moving question. And that's what can I do for me? I don't let a bad day wreck my life. I use it to move forward. And I do it by what can I do for me? Hmm. Well, and I can promise yeah. you one thing about that. What can I do for me? I cannot tell you what that answer is going to bring you, but I will move you forward. And the answers you find will be phenomenal into your life. Well, what can I do for me? I really like that. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks so much for being on the show. And we're looking forward to the next segment. Awesome. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 